what you've also done is you've created privacy. Yeah. You know, so that important. only now it's not what's required by statute in terms of the probate statutes. Everyone's got to get notice if they're an heir, even if you're cutting them out. In the case of trust law under the Uniform Trust Code, you only have to give notice as a trustee once someone passes away to the beneficiaries of the trust. It's time for the Retirement Reality Podcast with the founder of Principal Preservation Services, Mike Koyanen. This is the Retirement Reality Podcast. I am Ben George. We'll have Mike Coyne on in just a second. We are concluding our conversation on estate planning with our interview with Patrick Boley. Before I turn it over to Mike, let me point out the website, principalpreservationservices.com. That's where we'll put this episode along with part one as well all the past shows there. You can also contact Mike and his team at Principal Preservation Services through the website, set up an appointment, begin working the estate planning process into your overall plan. That's very important and he can help you with that. So without further ado, here's part two of the conversation with Patrick Boley. I want to welcome everybody back to the second part of this um, interview I'm doing here with Patrick Boley, who's a an attorney at Eckberg Lammers Law Firm, uh, two locations, Stillwater, Minnesota and Hudson, Wisconsin. Patrick, uh, welcome to the show again. Thank you so much. All right. So we, we talked the last episode here about the living side of estate planning and the documents needed and some of the issues that, that arise from that. So I really recommend people going back, if you haven't heard that, to go back to part one. You don't have to listen to part one before you listen to part two, but definitely go back and listen to that. But um, we want to focus on what happens life after death, you know, and as I've done a lot of seminars throughout the years, I would always jokingly ask, you know, in the seminar, I said, what, what is the mortality rate in this area? I haven't picked up the newspaper lately. And I remember I was down at the waterfront in La Crosse in a room of about 80 people. And I had seven to 10 different answers, 75%, 88%. And I go, isn't it roughly 100%? Are we all going to die someday? <laughs> Besides a couple of people who escaped, which is a Sunday morning message. But, uh, you know, jokingly, we're all going to pass and we have to plan for that day unfortunately. But it's so important that you're thinking about it and putting it down in paper and, and getting it, I guess, executed in place. So when it does happen, hopefully at the perfect time in your 90s and you live a long, you know, prosperous life and um, with no health major issues and you die in your sleep, the perfect way to do it, right? That everything is set in place. So let's talk about those documents that you need to have in place. So let's start, first of all, what happens to those people who don't have any documents in place? Uh, first of all, Patrick, what's that look like and what's it called? Right. So if you die without a will uh, or without a revocable trust, the state has written a will for you, mm. uh, and it's called the intestacy statute. Uh, and the idea is the state has made a bunch of assumptions about what the average person in an average situation mm. might want uh, for the disposition of their assets, who they might appoint as their personal representative. Uh, and uh, you you think you died without a will, you are wrong. The state <laughs> wrote a will for you. Yeah, and if, if you're like, I think most people said, if, if the government's already has something set in place, I don't think that's the estate plan that I really want for my, my family. You know, typically. Most of the time, that's right. Yeah. yeah. And I know there's a lot of interests with that uh, because it all depends if it's a first marriage, second marriage, kids from, you know, by blood or not by blood through that. It can be different for everybody's situation. I always joke that if you die intestate, it sounds like a digestive disorder. <laughs> it's probably worse than that, you know, because you're under the state laws of, of intestacy. So you don't want to do that. 
Uh, now let's jump to the will, because I think most people who come in our office says, oh yeah, I did my, I have a will, we're good. And they have this ma basic assumption um, that a will is all they need. And it's gonna make things simple, and the kids don't have to go to court, and uh, talk about the will and the limitations of a will. Yeah, uh, so, and, and, and to kind of take that example a little bit further, just one quick story, which is, so I, I get a call from a client or someone who became a client and they say, well, I, you know, my mom showed me her will and so therefore, you know, this is how it's gonna go. And, I don't, and, and, and then mother passes away and comes back. Well, I don't understand why I'm not getting this or I'm not getting that. And the reality is, is that the will is legally effective primarily once it gets entered into court. In probate court. court. Yeah, exactly. And the court begins to probate the will. And the reality is, is that uh, there are all kinds of things that you can do and should think about doing and maybe should do to avoid always having the will be the go-to document for things. So you advise people on all kinds of different financial accounts, you know, whether it's an IRA or, uh, you know, other investment type of accounts, cash accounts, life insurance. And for each one of those types of investments, so you can have a beneficiary designated on that. And that designation of a beneficiary is going to carry that asset out uh, to the person you've designated, number one, regardless of the will says. So you think that the will is going to have it all go to uh, daughter. And if parent walks in and has a particular account going to son, that's one asset that's no longer covered by the will. Yeah. And you keep working through that list. The main place where wills become important is, is for those assets that aren't designated. And a big place where people, you know, in addition to not working with their financial planner, where people kind of make the mistake of, of pushing things into probate is with their real estate. You know, if you yeah. want to own a house, unless you do something to make sure that that house is passing outside of probate, that's going to go through the probate court as well. Yeah, and that's why these transfer on debt deeds, which I know Minnesota, Wisconsin have them, they're all, every state has different versions or some states don't have them, is what I've been told. It's important to get that document. So explain the, the importance of a transfer on debt deed. Yeah, so let me back up for a second and talk about probate real quick, because mm -hmm. you hear me talk about yeah. it. It sounds, and I, I got to be careful, because I'm a probate attorney as well as an estate planner. So, yeah. uh, you know, there's nothing inherently wrong with the probate process in the sense that, uh, it's, you know, courts involved, it's fair, right. you know, all of those things. But on the other hand, you if you can avoid it, you'd like to avoid it in a lot of circumstances because you have to pay an attorney and typically on an hourly basis to get through it. Uh, if you don't pay an attorney to do it, you're going to be kind of lost in a jumble of paperwork that is not impossible to get through, but is very difficult. There are some fixed costs that are associated with it. You start in Minnesota, there's a $300 filing fee just to get in court to yeah. start things. You have to run an ad in the newspaper for a couple of weeks, and that'll be 150 you know, bucks at least to get through. Then you become subject to you know, statutory deadlines for you know, allowing creditors to appear for four months in Minnesota, for six months in Wisconsin before you can dispose of the assets with any right. kind of certainty that you're not going to be running afoul of some kind of hidden debt that you didn't know that the decedent had. So mm -hmm. all a long way of saying that if you can avoid it, you'd like to avoid it. it sometimes 
you don't want to avoid it, and we can certainly talk about those situations. But back to the transfer on death deed. So now there are two things that will trigger a probate. Okay, one is, and we talked a little bit about the beneficiary designations a moment ago. Mm -hmm. Every time you designate a beneficiary on a financial account, you're basically speaking for that asset. So what probate is for is all the assets that are unspoken for. Right, because the beneficiary designations are irrevocable in a sense, right? That's outside of what's, if you designate life insurance goes to Bob, you know, 50% to Bobby's, you know, 50% to Susie, that's not gonna be probated, correct? Right. Yeah. I mean, you can change them along the way. You can you can absolutely, you know, designate Bob today. And if you change your mind, you can give it to Cindy tomorrow. But the point is, is that that's a contractual relationship that you've set up basically with the provider of that particular investment uh, to to make sure that they understand when you die, they're going to carry out your wishes and give those assets to the person. Problem and where we come back to the transfer on death deed is that for real estate, uh, you don't have a MyCoin in that you can go to yeah. uh, to designate a beneficiary on the real estate. Instead, you have a Patrick Boley you can yeah. go to or, <laughs> or, right. or an estate planner you can go to who can fill out uh, and prepare for you a deed that will essentially say the following. If I own anything in this property at the time I die, here's where I want it to go. And you can even say, and if the if the person that I left it for is not around at the time I die, then here's the next place I want it to go. So you can work in some contingency planning okay. just like you would in your will. Okay. But the beauty of it is that by doing this, your children or whoever you're leaving the asset for, all they have to do at the time you after you die is show up in the county recorder's office with a death certificate and uh, some other documents. In Minnesota, it's an affidavit of uh, survivorship. In Wisconsin, it's uh, termination of interest. And if you record those documents, you know, and talk to me, we prepare and record those documents all, all the time. But the point is, is for a rather minimal fee, you can get through the process. There's no waiting around and uh, you don't have to go through court to have it happen. And when the, say, children inherit that house through the transfer on death deed upon their parents' passing, they, in- they inher- uh, inherit at the stepped-up value, correct? Yeah, the current tax law, and you know, for the foreseeable future, the tax law is, and so let's back up for a second, explain the concept real quick. So if I go and invest in Google stock and I pay 100 bucks for it, and five years later it's worth 500 bucks, then you have a, a, a capital gain that's right. existing there, the difference between what I paid, the 100 and the 500 that it's worth when I go to sell it. So that's a $400 capital gain. The tax laws as they exist right now for estate taxes and, and capital gains, when a person dies, they get what's called stepped up basis. So uh, if you had gifted that Google stock to me before you died, Mike, I would get it with a basis of $100. If you devise it to me in your will or you leave me, mm-hmm. you know, if you set up a, a plan to have it uh, uh, designated to me as a beneficiary on that asset and it passes to me at death, then I get that asset at the basis, which is fair market value at the time you die, which means if I liquidate the asset, there's no capital gains to be paid. So back to the, the, the house situation, yeah, so now you've passed away, your house is going to your children, they have it on a transfer on death deed, 
and they can go around, go ahead and sell it immediately and experience no capital gain That's as great. a result of that sale. Pretty much the same as we haven't got to the trust, but the same kind of the same way as that as well. Now, I've always told people to make it simple here. Uh, you know, a will is important, you know, because that just says that, you know, where you want your, your I say it's a legal wish list because it's not an entity, it doesn't own assets. And people are like, what do you mean? I put my house in my will. I put my, all these other, you know, interests in my will. I said, yeah, that just essentially puts you, tells the judge in the probate court, uh, if you're going to probate, where you want that to go, because each state has different limitations on what, what's a formal probate, what's a, an informal probate. You want to explain that? Yeah. So the short answer is that formal or informal is going to depend at least at, at the first stage on whether or not we need a hearing, uh, you know, whether or not an attorney or, or judicial proceeding needs to take place with a judge overseeing things before we even get started with the probate process. So if you have a will that's prepared uh, and that is uh, from the face of the document, legally sufficient in every respect. You know, there's no question about whether it was witnessed. There's no question about whether it's authentic. Then you can skip the process of having a hearing, and that keeps expenses down. Now, you can sometimes start with a formal process uh, because maybe you died without a will or because maybe there's some question about, you know, a lot of times this happens when you don't have the original copy of the will. Yeah. That's the thing is you have to probate the original copy of the will. If you don't, you need at least a formal probate initially to have the court accept the will and to probate and accept that what is being presented to the court is in fact a will or the best copy of it. Of it. But once you get through that hurdle, you may be able to flip back over to an informal administration where the court is taking a step back, letting you proceed uh, as you need to to administer the estate and wrap things up, hopefully without judicial involvement at any point along the way after that. Yeah, and I, I know even it affected my family as well about, um, Jesus, 2003, so already about 18 years ago, my grandfather, my grandma had already passed, my grandfather had passed. My own aunt contested my grandfather's estate because she wanted all of the money. She didn't want anything going to anybody else but her. And unfortunately, it kind of dragged things out because, you know, when you have just a will, you don't have some of these other documents in place. And she had an old version of the will, and she didn't know that he changed it. And she contested it, which kind of dragged things out and got to, got to be more costly. It's one reason why avoiding probate is, is an objective, because right. uh, anytime you have a court hearing uh, and you have to give notice to anyone who might have an interest, even if they've been cut out of the will, it's an invitation to have any of those people who are discontented with things mm -hmm. show up and start challenging things. And that's great. You have a great litigation background, too. So, you know, your, your goal isn't obviously recommending people go to probate, but that's what you do. You have that background. A lot of people haven't prepared. So you have that in your pocket to, you know, uh, go through that probate process, uh, which is very helpful. Um, it's our goal is our in our practice to help people give them information so they can avoid the probate. That's the biggest key. And sometimes it's just not family members contesting it. Um, I've heard stories where people falsely put claims against the states because it becomes a, a, a public event. When you have a, a will and you have probate, everything is public. They have to put records out in the, the newspaper or it's online these days. And people are really making a lot of money doing this, unfortunately. I don't think it's not, it's not the, uh, the righteous way to earn money these days, but people are doing it wrongfully and putting false claims against the estate. Um, you know, you're from Milwaukee originally. Uh, but I had a friend that lived out there in um, this certain hospital 
put a claim against my friend's client's estate when their parents passed because they said, you know, they owed him money. He never was one day in that hospital, in this, this hospital in Milwaukee. He, stayed, he was at a different hospital. But they're trying to get money. And I know other people have flown in from other states to contest because they have the same last name and said, I should be part of this estate. And then what happens, people are like, I'm going to fight this. I, I'm, this person's not our family member like they say they are. Um, and then the attorney says, yeah, you could fight it, but it could cost you a lot of money and attorney fees. And you might lose. And you might have to pay it regardless. So what do people do? They write the check. Yeah. Well, and we had a situation uh, and it just kept happening over and over again. It seems to have subsided. I actually ended up sending a couple of letters to the state attorney general because we would open probates and people would get these notices from some firm out in California Mm. that said, oh, we happen to notice you opened a probate. And don't you know that you now have to, uh, we will provide a service that will do research for you on whatever. And they make it look very official. Yeah. And they make it look like this is something that you have to pay. It's almost an invoice. And so email, email, phone call, phone call, question, question from clients everywhere. Do I have to pay this? What do I have to do or whatever? So it it is, you're right. You get, uh, it's an invitation to crazy. It's an invitation (laughs) for, for people to, who learn that there are assets that are out there to who want to try and take advantage. Uh, and the other thing, and, and I know we're going to talk about it a little bit with, with, uh, revocable trust. It's also an invitation for anyone who's kind of a black sheep family member to come out of the woodwork. And what's the downside of trying to challenge things? What's the downside of trying to throw a little gravel into the works uh, and try and at least force a settlement for uh, a nuisance value because I'm I'm being a pain and I'm going to gum up the works a little bit. Uh, I can't stand that stuff. I yeah. try to stop it at every turn, but every now and then you will find yourself in a settlement discussion where someone's saying, well, I'm going to keep fighting this and it's going to cost you money. That's a good point. I, I just was, uh, my mind just came to my mind when you said that is uh, years ago in rural Wisconsin, a, a client uh, was frustrated because when their parents passed and they had just a will, um, one of the children, one of the three children, you know, the parents helped out uh, very much financially. So pretty much they didn't get any, they, they put them out of the will because they got their inheritance while living. And the other two children were supposed to get the remaining estate because they helped them out so much. Well, because they had just a will, it was a public probate. Uh, they contested it and went to judge, I should have rightful shares. And then they got, they had to split everything a third again. So um, it was very frustrating because even though the parents, when they, they assumed it was going to be taken care of right and then they passed, it didn't go the way they wanted to because it was contested. Yeah, I, I know at some point we may be talking about uh, the, the perils of doing it yourself, and that's mm. very clearly one of the perils. You, you know, it's hard to disinherit a spouse, uh, but if you want to disinherit other people, it can be done, but it has to be done properly. And, yeah. and people frequently overlook the steps that may be needed to make that happen. Okay, so we talked about you know, dying and test day. We've talked about the wills. Let's talk about what I'm a big fan of, um, and that's having a revocable living trust. Can you explain th- that? Yeah. So let me start for just a second. There's a couple of different ways to think about it. One is is to think about what happens when you have a will and it's accepted into probate. Yeah. And and you were talking earlier about how 
uh, nothing is funded in a will. What has to happen with a will is you have to go to court and then it begins to get funded because what what springs to life as a matter of law is something called the probate estate. Right. And it's it's actually its own taxable entity. It gets its own tax ID number. There may be tax returns that have to be filed. And, and it is sort of like a corporation in the sense that you have someone who's the, the chairman of the board, the personal representative who's going to be guiding this thing from start to finish. Well, what if you could create that entity while you were still alive? And, you know, would that have advantages? And the answer is, yeah, it would, because you would have an entity like a corporation that would continue to exist after you died, that would have a governing document that would carry out your wishes, both in terms of how you want this entity to disperse your assets at your death, but it would also designate who the successor person is. You know, you're the trustee of your trust during your lifetime. Uh, if you become incapacitated, maybe you'd like one of your children or your spouse to come on as 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 trustee with you or, right. or successor trustee. And similarly, when you die, you've provided provisions for that as well. So in, in some ways, it's like having your own personal corporation that carries out your wishes uh, both in life and then after death and possibly for several years after death as well, because you may have provisions in there that provide for your children or even your grandchildren. And it also you know, carries out your wishes as, as you go along, so. Yeah, and the nice thing about, I think, I like about the trust is, you know, as an entity where the will is not, you get to get, you know, really direct these assets. And um, you can put, you can be as detailed as you want. You, you talked about the black sheep. You can have, I've seen verbiage in there for omissions. Like, I, I'm omitting this person, this person, this person. And you, you list their names in there because if they come to try to, you know, take this to court, you said, no, I did think about them and they're getting nothing or you're giving them a dollar or $10. Um, I've seen the incontestability clauses in a lot of these where it says if anybody, you know, files a claim against this or doesn't agree with the percentages, actually they're going to get kicked out if you fight. So it, it kind of eliminates the fighting, which I really like. Yep. And it, what you're effectively doing is you're probating your estate while you're alive That's too, great. you yeah. know, which takes a great uh, deal of the burden off of your kids after you die as well. So I love trusts because they have that that ability to do all those things. And at the same time, like you say, they're incredibly flexible documents. So it doesn't matter what it is that's on your mind or what's near and dear to you, uh, whether it's providing for your kids and how you're rolling out the assets or, you know, whether it's taking care of a pet. For example, you know, yeah. I've had people who have owned horses where we set up a fund to take care of the horses for, you know, we, we basically estimate the life expectancy and carry right. out and then determine what happens if we haven't, you know, used all the money on the horses during their life. A terrible example, yeah. but, but, it, but it's an illustrative of yeah. the many ways in which trusts can provide a flexible instrument. It really can take you anywhere you want to go in terms of how you want to dispose of your assets. And just like the transfer and death deed we talked about earlier, but you've, if you put your house in the trust, and uh, this is go through the funding process, which people get confused. They said, funding, I got to put money in my trust? I go, no, that's just the process that you're retitling your asset into the name of the trust. And if you're the trustee, you're still the owner. So when you put somebody's property in the trust, and I think it's important for people who have properties in other you know, other states, they might have live in Minnesota, they might have a cab in Wisconsin, or vice versa, or uh, maybe they, ha they own a condo in Florida or Arizona. How important is it to have a trust? 
huge uh and you've touched on so the trust is only as good as what it holds right because otherwise what you're going to have happen is uh either things are going to go out through beneficiary designations or you're going to have to go through probate and frequently when you're writing a trust you're also doing something called a pour over will which basically says if we have to go through probate we're going to dump everything right back into the trust so it's important while you're alive to fund that trust and to give it the assets that you have that's something that you do as an attorney at Eckberg Lammers help them fund the trust we will in some cases we're actually helping them fund the trust and and the classic example which you touched on is real estate and we got to come back to that because it's a huge point in other cases we're working with uh, uh, Mike and and we're providing some uh, instruction or some uh, you know kind of a to do list on here's how you're going to want to designate your beneficiaries on your financial assets to make sure that it's coordinated with your trust because right. you know we've talked about it before with your will if your beneficiary designations are going out to person A and your trust says it should be going out to person B you have an estate plan that that is not functioning cohesively, right. you know. But back to the real estate for a quick point, because you're right, uh, and you made a point earlier, which I loved, which is not every state has a transfer on death deed. And so, and Florida is a great example, actually. They have what's called a ladybird deed down in Florida. I've heard that, yeah. It's just, it's not my favorite. Okay. But, but the point is, is that, you know, it, it's because it's a least preferred option, and, the, and it can really create some entanglements in terms of how you're mortgaging the property and that sort of thing. The better alternative in that instance is to have a revocable trust because now you can title, rather than doing a transfer on death deed, you transfer title of the property into your revocable trust in, let's say, Minnesota or Wisconsin. Maybe you have a cabin in Wisconsin, you have your house in Minnesota, and maybe you have a, a town home or a timeshare down in Florida. Mm-hmm. By transferring those assets into your trust, and you can do that in, you know, we've got counsel down in Florida we work with who can draw up the the real estate deed down there, transfer it to your revocable trust. The result is now that entity, that little personal corporation, owns the assets and is able to carry them out so your kids don't have to worry about, I mean, this is the nightmare scenario and I've seen it happen. I've seen it happen even when someone has a trust and they they weren't smart about funding it. Yeah. You know, you have the you you boy, you had the document that was going to do everything you wanted it to do, but you didn't fund it. And the result is is your business was sitting outside the trust and your real estate in Wisconsin was sitting outside of the trust and your real estate in Florida was sitting outside the trust. And the result is guess what? You have to have probate in each one of those jurisdictions. Oh, what a and, yeah, costly. You know, and and time consuming, and why would you want that? So that's where revocable trust really kind of proves its worth. As, yeah, what you know, a nightmare that would be! Yeah. And, and most most parents choose what the most responsible child <laughs> to take on the estate, be the trustee or the executor, and then what happens if they have to go through probate? It's such a nightmare. Uh, I said you, you'd be better off uh, picking the child to give you the most headaches, and and was the most rebellious growing up to go through that headache. But uh, definitely don't. But that's one scenario. If you have whatever state you have property, then you can have probate in each state if it's not yeah, taken and, care and, of. Yeah, I mean, again, it, you make a great point. So you, because you have a trust, in addition to avoiding probate, what you've also done is you've created privacy. Yeah, you know, so that important. only now. It's not what's required by statute in terms of the probate statutes. Everyone's got to get notice if they're a, if they're an heir, even if you're cutting them out. 
in the case of trust law under the Uniform Trust Code, you only have to give notice as a trustee once someone passes away to the beneficiaries of the trust. So if someone has been cut out, it, you frequently get this. It's like, geez, dad passed away and I thought I was going to inherit anything. and I haven't heard anything yeah. since he passed away. What's going on with that? Well, dad might have had a trust and, and that might be the reason. But the other advantage you have is even if there is a probate because there was some little asset out there, maybe it was a collector's car or something that in Wisconsin was mm -hmm. over $50,000 and so now we have to be in probate court. Even if you have that probate because you have a pour over will, the will is going to be really generic. It's going to have a lot of walls on it and all it's going to say is I'm appointing someone as personal representative and I want all the assets to go back in my trust, period. And so that person who's sitting out there that you wanted to cut out, um, they get to see that you had a will, but all they get to see is that it's going back into the revocable trust. And they're not in a position, or gets harder, let's put it that way, yeah. to challenge the will. They're now going to have to try to pull the trust into that contest, and it, it gets a little bit stickier at that point. Yeah, and I agree. This is It's great to put, you know, really avoiding probate and putting this together uh, before you know you pass, instead of having it put in the court size and you're, you're out of that control. Now, let me just touch on um, second marriages, second third marriages, and let's just say, you know, he's married. He was married for twenty something years. Gets remarried. He has adult children. She was married for twenty something years. Adult children. They get together. The kids don't really know each other. If they don't have a trust to protect their estate and their interest on each side, I just say these children. You know they're cordial at family gatherings, but they don't really—they didn't grow up together. Not friendly, but it gets to be a nightmare if you don't have this taken care of. It can, and and that's another point where you need to. Ideally, you have some discussion amongst the, the, the two spouses. You really have to have that because, again, we have in Minnesota in particular, you've got some anti-disinheritance statutes. I had a nightmare case a couple years ago where she was on her second marriage. He was on his second marriage. And uh, one of the spouses wanted to cut the other spouse out. Mm. And thought that they could do it without the other spouse's consent. And a uh, great big mistake because uh, you will run afoul. There is an election in Minnesota that allows the spouse, the surviving spouse, up to a percentage of the estate, regardless of what you provide in your estate for them, uh, and rights to the homestead, at least while that spouse is alive. And, and there's certain other things that they're entitled to as well. So long story short, with a trust, you're working together to try and navigate those things together. And sometimes it can be a negotiation, yeah. but it's a helpful discussion to have. And the other thing is that there are provisions that you can put in trust that will say, look, honey, I'm going to look out for you while you're alive, but you understand that I'm married to you and I, you're the love of my life. After you pass away, I want the assets to go back to my kids. Yeah. You know, And so you can set up a structure in place that allows the married couple to, to treat each other with respect and care, uh, and yet at the same time make sure that their respective wishes are attended to so that uh, the two sides of the family don't necessarily have to be in each other's hair and, th and that there are kind of a clear expectation of how the assets are going to go out in each direction. All right, that's great information. I, I know we have to wrap up a few more kind of questions here. Hopefully it'll be wrapped up in about three to five minutes. But um, I'm reminded by a, a client years ago who, you know, there's a lot of intelligent individuals who don't understand this. And they try to do the documents them, themselves. And he showed me his trust uh, and he showed me the documents he had, but nothing was funded in it. And so, you know, we kind of talk about people like to do things themselves. 
And yeah, he had this fancy trust. And I told him, I said, nothing's funded. So um, you passed it, still going through probate. He goes, no, I have a trust. I go, well, who's going to get these all these documents filed if they're not filed? So, you know, I know there's LegalZoom and all these other things that you can do. We talked about it at the previous episode, but a lot of people are making errors. This is not their expertise. Yeah, theoretically, you can do it yourself. It's it's like, theoretically, I can do the plumbing in my house. Uh, <laughs> it's not happening here. It, right, it's not happening for me either. And, and, uh, and, and the amazing thing that I've seen in my career has been even very intelligent lawyers who were excellent at what they were doing. You know, have a case involving a guy who is an excellent litigator. Have a, you know, have a... Uh, the spouse of a guy who was an excellent intellectual property attorney. Mm -hmm. But when the time came for them to, you know, roll up their sleeves and draft their own estate plan, were not experts in that field and, and didn't realize what they didn't know. And it's a perilous thing. And you can have all kinds of absolute bizarro results that are unintended. There are terms that are being used that you don't understand what's going on. My favorite one is a couple of brothers went online to prepare a, a will on the internet. And I want to say, theoretically, you can do it on the internet, mm -hmm. but you don't have that dialogue with the estate planner to right. sit there and, and ask the questions. And so they looked at a term in the will that said residue, and they thought, well, that's kind of what you get after you've done the dishes and you drain the sink, <laughs> you know? So they thought they were leaving for some distant relative a tiny amount of whatever was left over in the state. In the estate, not realizing that residue is a huge concept and residue really ropes in everything that isn't spoken for wow. with the result that <laughs> this distant relative winds up with close to a million dollars oh worth of assets, the lion's share of the estate. Uh, it goes through probate because uh, now we're in court trying to question whether or not residue was really intended that way and we're wow. taking testimony on it. And uh, everyone loses in that scenario. So uh, trying to do it yourself is, is usually not a good idea in plumbing and usually not a good idea in estate planning either. All right, that's great. And uh, I think that's, that's well stated there. That's a, a scary situation. Now, what's the process of getting this, this done? You know, if, when you, somebody wants to look at that, and I, before I say that is I think a lot of people come in here and say, I need to get a trust because I need to protect my state from nursing home. I say this is not nursing home avoidance. This is to make things as simple and easy on your kids as possible or whoever's getting your estate. So I just want to address that. Is that correct? Yeah. I, I mean, a lot of times if you're at the point where you're trying to avoid the nursing home because you're about to go into the nursing home or you're avoiding the expenses, it's too late. There's a five-year look back. And so it all goes to the point you can't start planning soon enough. And right. on a quick plug on that, you have a lot of newly married couples with young children and they think, well, we're young. How could we possibly need a will? And I frequently say, that's when you want a will the most, actually, yeah. because your will is there to appoint guardians for your kids. And, and I can't think of anything more important in the estate planning process than trying to think about and signal to a court who you would want to serve as guardians for your kids. So back to uh, the process, you know, typically uh, we get the call from a client who's interested in having the discussion. We usually have them fill out a questionnaire so we understand their assets because understanding their assets and also understanding 
who their children are, how old they are, you know, where they are at various points in life. Very important to understanding how we're going to put this whole thing together, whether we're concerned about controlling assets to the kids, whether we're concerned about tax issues uh, or probate avoidance, what the issues are. So uh, usually from start to finish, at least to get them in the, you know, uh, get the documents out to them, it's a couple of weeks for them to review. So we meet with them a couple weeks after that, we've got drafts for them to review. And then within a week or two after that, we've got them in to sign. Yeah, and I always remind people, you get documents done when you're of sound mind and not when you're in a hurry or a rush to get them done. I know they can accommodate, like you said, you can expedite it at times, but um, it might not be soon enough. And a lot of people, just as you mentioned, in their 20s or 30s that have a family and that's when they do their estate. And so many people bring in wills in their office and show them to me and they're, they look like just came off the, the press. I mean, they're 30-year-old documents, and it still says that their children have to go live with you know their uncle if something happens to them. Because a lot of people put these together when they took their big trip and they left the kids behind. And now your kids are adults with their own kids, and it still says that they have to go live with their uncle. So probably need to relook and get, get that readjusted. You know, how often you sh- should you look at your estate planning documents and review those? So it, it depends. Uh, you know, typically the advice is once every five years. I, I'll, I'll say, you know, there are some milestones in life, and one of them is your kids reaching adulthood, yeah. you know. And sometimes it's, well, they've reached adulthood, but now, you know, they're still kind of in that zone of I'm, I'm a little concerned about how they're going to spend the money. Um, on the point you were raising, though, uh, in terms of having those old wills, you know, there are ways of curing those things without okay. necessarily having to start from scratch all the time. Okay. And, and that's usually my first point when I'm looking at those things is, is there something we can do a couple of just amendments to the will, basically okay. called a codicil, uh, where if we change two paragraphs of the will, it's still a viable document. You okay. know, or the trust, same thing. So Awesome. Well, this is a lot of great information. And um, what I like about Patrick here is this is what he specializes in. And I think it's important to know that, um, you know, when you're working with an attorney, just because an attorney doesn't mean they specialize. There's a lot of errors made by attorneys, as Patrick had mentioned, that, uh, you know, there's jack-of-all-trade attorneys. And then there's, you know, but they're master of none. Uh, I really recommend, you know, having that free consultation with them. Find out what is best. Um, he's not going to always recommend just having a trust, but he's going to look at your whole situation and what is best for your family. And there's not even a an income limit or a, a, a asset limit that qualifies you to do a trust. I've had people over the years saying, my advisor said I shouldn't get a trust because I don't have a million dollars. It has nothing to do with money. It has to do with your family dynamics and how simple you want things to go as well. So I really recommend reaching out to uh, Patrick at Eckberg Lammers Stillwater location or Hudson and uh, you know set that that appointment up it's you know it's never too late to start and you want to make sure things are, are set in stone but you don't want the uh, the state or others to determine where your assets go that you worked 30 40 50 years for to establish what you've established over these years so I want to thank Patrick thank you for coming on in Pleasure to be here. Really appreciate it. Yeah, and we're going to send this out on email to people and on Facebook as well, uh, so people can listen to this and feel free to reach out to uh, to their law firm for that, or, or else just call our office and get the information. Our Hudson location phone number is seven one five eight zero eight eight nine eight one. Our Woodbury location is six five one four one four zero zero one six. Anything else you want to add? 
only, yeah, you mentioned free consultation. I'll quote you the fee uh, in the course of that hour in terms of and my recommendation on uh, how to prepare an estate plan that will address your needs. That's so. awesome. Thanks again, Patrick. Everybody, thanks for listening in. We're, uh, we'll get some good information on the future podcast. Uh, this was very informative on estate planning. There's a lot of information, and I know we had to shorten it up, but um, Patrick will get very detailed on your situation because everybody's situation is different. Um, have a great day. We'll look forward to reaching out to you soon. Information is for illustrative purposes only and does not constitute tax, investment, or legal advice. Always consult with a qualified investment, legal, or tax professional before taking any action.